Hey there, Rebelcast listeners. Salim Rezai here. Just a quick promo before we get into the main show. We're less than a month away from the Rebellion and EM conference, which is happening June 28th through 30th in San Antonio, Texas. Just some highlights from the conference. Well, we have some pre-conferences happening on June 28th. We have ultrasound training, both in the morning and the afternoon, how to start simulation at your shop, advanced EKGs, and cadaver labs, both in the morning and afternoon for all those procedures that you want to learn how to do but never have a chance to do. For those of you who have kids, don't worry. We're planning on having child care for all three days during the entirety of the conference. Everybody who registers is automatically invited for free to the 007 Black Tie Casino Royale social event happening on Saturday, June 29th. Now, for those of you who can't travel all the way to San Antonio, we do have a live stream option, $200, videos will stay online for 30 days after the event, and you can claim CME for just participating in the live stream. Well, that's enough about Rebellion. If you're interested, go check out www.rebellionenem.com. On to the show. Welcome back to RebelCast. I'm your host, Salim Rezai. And for this episode, episode 67, we're going to be talking about extending times for systemic thrombolysis and acute ischemic stroke. Now, normally I would go into an intro background set of information, but instead I'm going to bring on my co-host, the Swami, a non-Swami Nathan. How's it going, brother? Good, man. I'm good to be here and a uh, good topic to talk about. We haven't talked much about systemic thrombolytics actually in a while. We've talked a lot about all of these retrieval papers, the endovascular studies, but um, this is a good topic for us to cover and one that is getting far more press than it probably should. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. I mean, this is the second one on this, right? Uh, it was wake up and then there was this paper that kind of came out. We knew this was coming. We were waiting for the results and we finally got them. And I think there's a, a lot to talk about with this paper. So I agree with you, completely excited. All right, let's get into it. So despite the lack of replication of NINs and ECAS-3 trials, which are the only two trials, by the way, that have shown any benefit in systemic thrombolysis, we still have guidelines that state the use of systemic TPA in the less than or equal to four and a half hour window after the onset of symptoms of acute ischemic stroke is the way we should be managing these people. Now, these recommendations are all based off of non-contrast head CTs for the selection of patients. Now, there's been a ton of new endovascular studies that have come out, Swami, and I want you to kind of go through, walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, those endovascular studies have been really important because they've shown that perfusion-based imaging can show potentially viable brain tissue beyond four and a half hours of stroke onset, especially in patients with large vessel occlusions, and so the endovascular treatments can lead to good neurological outcomes. This advance has has prompted investigators to look at perfusion-based technology to identify a larger cohort of patients without the large vessel occlusions that might be candidates for systemic thrombolysis in spite of the fact that they're outside of our traditional hour windows. Now, one of the big fears as a provider in stroke management is this concept of indication creep. And we always talk about this in stroke management. And basically what I mean by indication creep is finding more uses for a medication or a product without strong evidence to support its use. So the bigger question, I think, for us, Swami, is does this increase in use help the company's bottom line or is it helping the patients in front of us? And it's no wonder physicians are so skeptical of industry-sponsored trials as we sometimes question what the motives behind the study are. Now, we had already talked about Wake Up being published looking at extending this window out to nine hours, but now we have, no pun intended, the Extend trial. So let's talk about what they did. 
So this was a phase three multi-center randomized placebo-controlled trial. They looked at patients with ischemic stroke with hypoperfused but salvageable regions of brain tissue on perfusion imaging in the four and a half to nine hour window after onset of stroke, or if they woke up with the stroke, if it was within nine hours from the midpoint of their sleep to the time that they're presenting. And and Salim, I think we can all agree that is a very soft way to enroll patients to say, oh, well, you want to sleep at eight you woke up at six o'clock in the morning with these symptoms. We're going to go halfway in between that and say that's when your stroke started. That's not really science, but that's the way that they did this. And again, this was a randomized trial. So patients were randomized to either systemic TPA or placebo, and the alteplase was given at pretty standard doses, 0.9 mg per kg of body weight administered IV, 10% of that as a bolus, and 90% over the next hour. So that is our traditional dosing. And then when we look at the outcomes... They had like a ton. There was a primary set of outcomes. There was a secondary set of outcomes, a tertiary set of outcomes, and a safety set of outcomes. And for the listeners, I just want to really simplify this. So the primary outcome was a modified Rankin score of zero or one at 90 days. So basically, the patient was independently functional and able to do all their activities of daily living. And then the safety outcome I think there was two of them that are probably important, which was death at 90 days and then symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And I'll list all the other second and tertiary outcomes, but I don't think they're worth mentioning here on the audio. Yeah, I think same thing for the inclusion exclusion. We're going to list all of those in the show notes, but the big ones here was this was anyone over 18 years of age. They had to have excellent functional status prior to enrollment. So prior to this stroke, they had to have a modified ranking scale of less than two. They wanted to make sure that they weren't enrolling patients that already had significant disability from their stroke. And that's fine. That's what most of the studies do. They also, again, had to have hypoperfused but salvageable regions of brain tissue. And we've talked about this many times when we talked about the large vessel occlusion strokes and about endovascular therapy, that these perfusion studies are really looking for patients with a small infarcted core and a large penumbra. And that makes sense because if they have that large penumbra, it means that they have tissue that is viable and salvageable. Whereas if they have a big area that is infarcted, it doesn't matter whether we reverse flow to that area. We're not going to be able to bring that tissue back. 100% agree with that. It's, uh, it's the concept I make here is, uh, or analogy that I make here is, uh, you have somebody with dead cardiac tissue and you do a heart cath and you put a stent in and you reperfuse the vessel, but you already have dead cardiac tissue, then you're not going to get function back in the heart. It's the same kind of concept. Absolutely. So let's look at the results here. So I think This is where some of their wizardry starts to kind of take place. So they originally had a sample size that was supposed to be 400 patients. And then later they modified that sample size to 310. And then to add further insult to injury, they only got 225 of their planned 310 patients because of, quote unquote, I wish people could see me here doing air quotes, early stoppage because of the results of the wake-up trial. So they only got 225 patients of the original 400. And if we break that down just a little bit further before we get into the results, 25% of these patients were in the greater than six hour to nine hour window. Only 10% of the patients were in the greater than four and a half to six hour window. But the majority of these patients was that soft outcome you were talking about, Swami. 65% of patients woke up with their stroke symptoms with an unknown time of onset. And I think that's really important when we talk about the results of this study is we don't really know if these people fell in that four and a half to six hour window or if they fell in that six to nine hour window because the majority of them woke up with their symptoms. 
they could have fallen in the nine hour plus window, right? I mean, we don't know exactly when this started. They could have even fallen in the less than three hour window if they woke up with the stroke symptoms, but they just started. We just don't know. And Salim, I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead of ourselves, but this really does introduce a lot of issues into the application of this information going forward. And I guess we'll come back to that in the limitations and in the discussion. Absolutely. So what were the main results, Swami? Why don't we talk about what the baseline NIH was, because I think there was some unbalancing in the groups. And then let's get into the primary and safety outcomes that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So the initial NIHSS scores were slightly different. They were about 12 in the group that got Alteplase and about 10 in the placebo group. So a slight difference between those two. And that can change the ordinal analysis, which I think was one of the secondary outcomes because the ordinal analysis is looking at shift. If they started with a lower number to start with, that might affect that shift um, of the ordinal analysis. So it's not the primary outcome. The primary outcome was a modified Rankin scale of zero or one at 90 days. And they found that in the Alteplase group, 35.4% of patients were in that zero to one group. In the placebo group, it was 29.5%. That's an absolute difference of 6%. And they did a risk ratio there and they adjusted that risk ratio. And the adjusted risk ratio came out to 1.44 with a confidence interval of 1.01 to 2.06, which is just above that one number, right? That confidence interval just about touches one, but it doesn't. And so they can claim that these are statistically significant results. That's right. And the thing that's uh, important here is that when you, they actually had an unadjusted risk ratio and this actually did not show a significant difference between groups. So the relative risk unadjusted was 1.2 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.82 to 1.76. So not statistically significant. But interestingly, in the paper, they didn't really mention it that that strongly. They went with the adjusted risk ratio. Oh, they buried it, Salim. They completely buried the original results <laughs> of their uh, of their um, risk ratio. The unadjusted is not there at all. You really have to pour through all of the online stuff to find that number. Yeah, I was trying to be a little PC, Swami, but I, I like your I like your version <laughs> of it better. <laughs> Um, and then when we look at symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, I think this is pretty on par with what we see with prior stroke studies. So in the Alteplase group, we see a, a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage rate of about 6.2%. And in placebo, it was about 0.9%. And I, I think we both agree that's pretty much on par with prior studies. Absolutely. That's what you see over and over again. 6% bleed rate in TPA, about 1% in the placebo group. I mean, these patients have strokes. They are at risk for bleeding spontaneously, whether you give them Alteplase or not. But the risk is much, much lower when you don't give them the Alteplase. And then I think the big thing here also, one last thing I'll add is there was no improvement in functional status or functional independence at 90 days, regardless of which arm these patients got randomized to. And then also there was no statistical difference in mortality within 90 days after the intervention. So it was 11.5% with the Alteplase and 8.9% with the placebo. So we don't really see a lot of other benefits. We see this kind of hocus pocus of statistics to kind of get us to this like barely statistically significant. Um, and then when you actually look at the unadjusted values, it's actually none of this was statistically significant. And I think that's one of the big points we're trying to make here. 
And Salim, I think that the um, safety stuff here is also really important. So there was a almost, well, more than a six-fold increase in intracranial hemorrhage, symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And even though the mortality difference wasn't statistically significantly different, it is 2.6%. That is a real number, 2.6% difference in mortality. And if you apply this more broadly, it's very likely those numbers will increase, that that gap will increase and you'll see more significant mortality. Now, I can't guarantee that. I, I can't predict the future, but that is usually what we see. And so that's really concerning that we have a higher mortality rate. And in most of the studies looking at Alteplase, the early mortality rate is always significantly higher or most of the time significantly higher. So you might knock off your family member a little bit earlier if you give them Alteplase, but long-term, the mortality seems to be about the same here. But again, 2.6% difference, that is a real difference. And the intracranial hemorrhage rate, again, that's a real number, 5.3% difference. That's that's pretty big. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just to summarize this, I mean, what we're getting at is we look at all the patient-oriented outcomes here, the strongest signal is in harm and not in benefit. And that harm is in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. There is a trend toward worsened mortality when you get TPA or Alteplase. And according to the authors, there might be a slightly statistical significant improvement in modified Rankin outcome of zero or one. But this was after they played around with a bunch of the statistics. So the strongest signal for patient-oriented outcome is toward harm with symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Yeah, I think we have a lot more to say about that, but let's talk a little bit about the strengths and limitations before we get to that discussion on on the statistical wizardry that happened here. Yeah, so I think the strengths, there wasn't really that many, so we'll just put those in the show notes. I mean, it was a randomized trial and you know they adjudicated, excuse me, their symptomatic uh, intracranial hemorrhage rates with uh, a panel of stroke neurologists and neuroradiologists, so that was good, but there wasn't really much else. I think we should just jump right into the limitations because this is where you and I really want to kind of dig into the meat of this paper. Yeah. So we mentioned it a couple of times that the trial was terminated early because of the loss of equipose after the publication of the wake-up trial in May 2018. Now, this does bring up some issues because as you go to completion of a trial, you tend to see regression towards the mean. So stopping early tends to over-exaggerate the benefits or even show benefit when there is no benefit. So that's really an important concept for us to have in our minds. These trials should be completed. They should be completed unless there's a real, real risk to the patients for not completing it. And I think one single trial showing a benefit isn't really enough for us to say that we shouldn't complete the rest of this trial. And I just want to say this before I move on to the next limitation. This is really scary when things like this get published because it takes, I mean, they've shown this before, one study this small with 225 patients, and next thing you know, guidelines are changed. And they shouldn't be. It's a super scary thing. But then a lot of us are held to this measure or standard of care of doing this stuff for patients. So now all of a sudden, what we're talking about with this paper is stroke alerts are no longer large vessel occlusions and less than four and a half hours. If the guidelines change because of this study, we're now going to be calling stroke alerts out to nine hours. You imagine the effect that has on systems of care, all the other sick patients that lose your attention. This is a really important point that you bring up, Swami. Yeah. And it's not just our attention that gets lost. Remember, you got to go send a stroke team down to see that patient too. They have other things to do as well. They're taking care of sick patients in their neuro ICUs or wherever those patients are being housed. And those resources are not infinite, right? This is a zero sum game. If I pull my stroke team down every you know, half an hour to see a patient, 
they're not going to be able to provide care, the ongoing care that a stroke patient needs in order to have a good recovery. And Salim, the one thing that I think we all agree on is that good, dedicated stroke teams lead to better outcomes for patients, regardless of the use of Alteplace or not. Yeah, that's been shown over and over again that people will have improvements with a good stroke team and a rehab facility. Now, the other thing that really kind of made me chuckle a little bit and I'm not quoting this, but it's essentially pulled from the paper is one of the big limitations is the design of the trial, the analysis and collection of the data were performed by members of the executive committee and by the investigators at the trial sites who had multiple financial conflicts of interest, including Boehringer Ingelheim, the manufacturer of Alteplace, which again, it doesn't negate the results of a study but it sure makes you skeptical, especially when you see all this hocus pocus and wizardry with statistics. Yeah. And one of our friends, uh, Ryan Radecki, on his blog, EM Lit of Note, wrote up another paper that was published by the same group. It was a systematic review meta-analysis in that four and a half to nine hour window. Same set of authors. And in that particular trial in The Lancet, they actually said that these authors have no financial disclosures. But they clearly do, as evidenced by this paper. So you really have to be careful with seeing how these things get hidden. You know, we kind of kid around that the financial disclosures now are so long that they don't include them with the actual article. You have to go online to find them. Again, things are being hidden from us. If you weren't embarrassed by that, if you didn't think that it mattered, you'd put it right up front. It would go before the title of the article. But they don't. They used to bury them at the end of the paper, and now they bury them online where, let's be honest, Liam, 99% of us are not going to the online version of the article to find all these things. No, I, I agree. And a lot of times I'm having to look in the supplements and things are buried in the supplements. It's like it used to be you just read a paper and you get all the information you needed and the supplement was just like protocols and that sort of thing. Now, I mean, these supplements are like you know, 15, 20 pages long and things are buried in there and it takes forever to important go find it. Yeah. Important information. Yeah. There's important stuff in there. Exactly. And, and and listen, we don't mind doing it. We don't mind reading that stuff and then telling you guys about it. And it would be great if everybody had time to look at it, but it's just not possible, right? I mean, we don't even think that everybody has time to read all of the relevant papers that are out there. We don't. We don't have the time to do that. We rely on our friends to do some of analysis as well. But these supplements are specifically made so that we can't read them, that we're not going to get to them. Exactly. And then the final thing I want to bring up as a limitation, and then we can kind of really get into the this uh, discussion here, is that recruitment from this trial occurred from 2010 through February 2018. And obviously, there was a huge amount of shift in the way we manage stroke. And we mentioned this earlier during that time period. So stroke management with endovascular therapy basically changed between 2010 to 2018 because there was something important that happened in January 2015. We had our first positive endovascular therapy study, Mr. Clean. And so this also can affect the results of this study, these advances in stroke care that incurred during enrollment of the study. So it's difficult to know like how that actually affected the study, like patients that were enrolled back in 2010 versus the patients that were enrolled like maybe 2016 to 2018. Yeah, I think that really does make a big difference. But I think the thing that we really wanted to dive into the discussion was the manipulation of the statistics here. And, you know, we mentioned up front about the sample size. You know, sample sizes are derived for a reason. It's because that's how you determine what power you need to detect the difference that you're looking for. This sample size was adjusted. We don't know why it was adjusted, but we have to assume, we have to guess that they saw how slow enrollment was. So they adjusted their numbers of what they needed to enroll. 
And then even with the new target being lower, they didn't even meet that one. Uh, They under-enrolled here. We mentioned before that when you under-enroll, you tend to overestimate the benefits or over-exaggerate the benefits. And the benefit may not even be there when you finish that study because of regression to the mean. So that's a really important concept. And we see a lot of papers where they fail in meeting their enrollment numbers. And we're seeing more and more of those published in big journals like the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, and to harp on that a little bit more, Swami, like despite having 16 centers in Australia, one center in New Zealand, 10 centers in Taiwan, one center in Finland, they were only able to recruit 225 patients from 2010 to 2018. Sounds very similar to some of the endovascular therapy studies that we talked about. This isn't going to be a ton of patients that meet these criteria, right? And, and so, so yeah, there's, there's two things here, right? So either uh, they are excluding a bunch of patients. So the sample size, the sample, uh, the so patients selected are biased, right? So they're seeing patients that are like, this patient is not going to have a good outcome. Don't put them in the study, which is a possibility that that's happening. Or it's just such a rare event that you get patients in this four and a half hour to nine hour window that we shouldn't be talking about shifting or changing our systems to meet what we're going to see, what, once a year, twice a year, according to these study results. Well, and I think the big thing is, is not that they're excluding these patients, Swami. I think the bigger thing is, is what we're talking about is viable penumbra and small cores and how many patients that come in with stroke actually meet that criteria and and also have a good baseline neurologic status when they come in, right? Not had previous strokes, don't have, they're not bed bound, don't have other comorbid disease. We're talking about a very select patient population when we're talking about this. And you're right, it's going to be like one, one a month maybe, or two a month if you're lucky. And this study shows that. I mean, they couldn't even meet their numbers over eight years of recruitment from almost 20 sites. Right. And then we're going to throw a bunch of resources at all the other patients who aren't going to fit into this model. And again, it's, I don't want to put dollar values on taking care of patients, but at the same time, like it's a zero sum game. Those dollars could be spent somewhere else to help patients. Now I'm going to start talking a little bit about the statistical wizardry here. I'm going to let you be the uh, bad cop. I'll be the good cop because you have a much more eloquent way of saying this stuff. So <laughs> let me just start with the PC version of it. Okay. And then I'll let you like kind of dive into it and I might just ride your coattails on this. Perfect. So so the original pre-specified analysis of the primary outcome, it was supposed to be the more standard logistic regression model. That's what we typically see in stroke studies. But with no explanation whatsoever, the authors used this covariate adjusted modified poison regression instead, Wait, hey, Slim, which is not... Slim, I think that's Poisson. It's, fr- it's French. Oh, my bad. It's French. It's Poisson. Well, I'm I'm American, bro. I'm American. Drop the A. Anyways, (laughs) this is not what we traditionally see using in previous stroke trials. And people don't need to worry about like, what is logistic regression and this other type of regression? What does it actually mean? Basically, what a, a logistic regression or a regression model does is it basically tries to adjust for confounding variables. That's basically what they're trying to do. And they basically used a bunch of these. And then what's interesting is the original logistic regression model that they were going to use, they didn't use in the final publication. They used this other one that was actually statistically significant. And then they buried the original one in the supplementary appendix. Like you had to go way to the bottom of the supplement to find what the original logistic regression was. And guess what? They found no difference between groups. However, the covariate adjusted, modified, say it, Swami. How do you say it? 
regression model, which is what was published in the manuscript, it did find a small difference. And so it looks like what they did is they did a bunch of different types of logistic regression modeling, and then they picked the one that was statistically significant and with no explanation that's the one that made it into the main publication. Is that PC enough for you, Swami? I feel like we're doing bad cop, bad cop. So first of all, if we have any French listeners and I pronounced Poisson wrong, I apologize and please tell us how to do it the right way. Also, I apologize for my terrible French accent. Can't do accents at all. So uh, I apologize for both of those things in advance. But I, I think you hit on all of the big things. Basically, what they did was they did multiple regression models until they found one that worked, until they found one that told them what they wanted to see. So they went in with this very biased perspective and then just sought for a model that proved what they wanted to see. And, and that's a real issue. It highlights a, mu- a bunch of different things, not just about this study, but about all studies that you really can manipulate the statistics to do what you want to show, right? You, you can make the numbers molded and changed until you get what you want. Uh, our friend Rory Spiegel would call this statistical shenanigans. I love the word shenanigans because it makes me think of Super Troopers and that scene in Super Troopers. And again, if you don't know what scene I'm talking about, just just go watch the movie. We're not going to recount it here, but <laughs> but that's what this is. What this is is it's worse than than data uh, mining. This is just taking the same data and twisting it and twisting it until it gives you what you want out of it. And and again, this is a real problem. This is this is a problem that we should not be policing. Neither myself nor Salim are statistical experts. We learn this through our friends who are experts in this, but the New England Journal of Medicine should be doing this themselves. They should be policing this. They should be saying to the authors, hey, this is not what you set up originally. This is not what you sought to do. Show the results that you initially said you were going to go after. Show the statistical modeling that you said you were initially going to use. But they don't do that. The New England Journal of Medicine is failing. Once again, it is failing physicians. And as a result, it fails patients. It no longer cares about what's best for the patient, what information the physician needs to deliver the best care. It just cares about what sells the most reprints of their issue. Yeah. And this is not the first time that uh, we've seen publications from New England Journal of Medicine this year that have made us kind of scratch our heads. There was a, an exa four, right? That talked about and add an exa net alpha for reversal of um, um, anticoagulants. And then there was also the omatocycline, the new antibiotic that just came out um, in skin and soft tissue infections and in pneumonia. And we'll, we'll put links to that um, at the bottom of the show notes. But this is not the first time New England Journal of Medicine has done that this year. No, Sleeman, I think our listeners might be starting to get tired of hearing us rail against the New England Journal of Medicine. We don't have anything specifically against the New England Journal of Medicine, except that it is the worst of publication that we can see, right? It, it is the worst bastardization of the scientific process. This is not what we deserve. And the reason that we bring it up over and over again is we're hoping that that maybe, maybe, maybe we'll hold this journal to a higher level and they'll actually change, that they'll get tired of hearing their names smeared and, and us talking about how bad they are. But I'm not sure that's going to happen, Salim. No. And the thing is, is it's not even specific to New England Journal of Medicine. I think the bigger thing here, and I think you would agree with this, is the whole reason we started doing this podcast, the the blog, all of it, is to get the best information out there, to learn ourselves as providers, to ensure that we're doing the right and best things for our patients. And it takes little publications like this to completely just out, like undo all that. 
And now all of a sudden we're doing all these things to people that are harmful. And I think nobody, no physician, no provider, nobody ever wants to cause intentional harm to their patients. And this is just our way of going through this stuff and ensuring that we are not causing harm. So it's not specific to New England Journal of Medicine. It's just publications like this are very dangerous because a lot of people don't spend the time going through all this stuff. And I think that's the bigger message here, Swami. Yeah, absolutely. That, I think that's exactly what people need to hear and we need to know. And, and we'll stop We'll stop railing against the New England Journal of Medicine. Just tell people you have to be really careful about what you read, what you do with the information, and don't rely on the quality or the, the name brand of the journal to say, because it's in this journal, it has to be well-done information. It has to be well-researched. These are the best methods. They have a lot of biases too. So you have to be really careful. All right. I'll get off my soapbox. Sorry, man. I just, you know, it's early morning. I'm not caffeinated. I I'm just, nailed, you know, I'm nailed to my stop. soapbox. Uh, I can't. I can't get <laughs> off of it, but I'm going to try. I will. Okay. Let's wrap this up. So let's go. Let's, let's break the, yeah, let's wrap it up. That's exactly what I was going to say. So here's the author's conclusion. I'm going to quote from the paper. Among the patients in this trial who had ischemic stroke and salvageable brain tissue, the use of alteplase between four and a half to nine hours after stroke onset or at the time the patient awoke with stroke symptoms resulted in a higher percentage of patients with no or minor neurologic deficits than the use of placebo. There were more cases of symptomatic cerebral hemorrhage in the alteplase group than in the placebo group, end quote. What is our take-home point, Swami? All right. So our clinical take-home is that this study should in no way change practice and is a ridiculous display of statistical hocus-pocus. Another example of a small study stopped early with frank manipulation of data to help promote one thing, more money in the pockets of the company making the medication. And there you have it, Rebel Emers. That's what we got for you on this episode. Please leave us your thoughts, comments. We love reading the questions and any other thoughts that you have. We sometimes get tired of listening to ourselves ranting all the time. So anything you want to leave us, we're happy to respond. Until next time.